0: Hi, this is Manisha Kadagatoor for Tell It Like It Is. My guest today is Rajendra Kalur, an ex-banker and entrepreneur. With over 25 years of experience, Raj has traveled, uh, no straddled the multinational route as well as co-founded two very successful wealth management firms. Currently, he's on the board of the CFA Society and heads research and advocacy committee at the CFA Society. He has a CFA and an MBA from the Cranfield School in the UK, He's also a long-distance runner, trekker, and cyclist. Welcome, Raj.
1: Yeah, thanks, Manisha. Uh, you have been amazing in your introduction. Couldn't have done better, yeah.
0: No, I've got, I've got the great uh, panelists. So, yeah. So, Raj and I go back a long time, and I've always admired how he's gone about his life. Um, so, maybe, Raj, you want to start over there, right at the beginning? Tell me all about your story. Where did you start from? And um, yeah, it's, it's been a long journey.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, old as you can see with uh, graying hairs and uh, uh, hopefully not much of it has translated into uh, wisdom. But yeah, I mean, the follies of the past, uh, uh, we go on correcting into the future and that's where uh, I I am today. So, but uh, to answer Manisha's uh, question, yeah, I mean, um, I started uh, fairly early uh, if you look at it and uh, if I uh, really um, uh, recollect my career days, Um, immediately after my graduation is when I joined jobs. And uh, that's uh, because, uh, uh, you know, my father retired early and uh, uh, my two younger brothers were still studying and there's somebody who needs to keep the um, house fires warm. So that's uh, how uh, uh, it started. I started with a public sector insurance company. And uh, in those days, the early 90s, in fact, even prior to the, uh, the you know the big bang reforms of uh, uh, Narsimha Rao and uh, Manmohan Singh, uh, and uh, uh, in an industry which was very highly unionized, so it was uh, an exciting experience. Me at uh, around a little over twenty years, uh, um, you know, working in a highly unionized financial services company, and uh, you know, inspired by uh, the writings of Ayn Rand and uh, others uh, in the Western world. Uh, Really, you know, the the unionized uh, uh, environment was uh, felt a little strange. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, the first uh, day in my office, I was uh, virtually get out by the union uh, for, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost trying to uh, implement or suggesting uh, things which uh, the unions uh, didn't agree. Uh, So that was the strength. It was a pretty, uh, you know, fiery uh, beginning for me. And uh, it was a great learning as well. And uh, from there on, I think uh, uh, I realized that uh, one can't be impulsive and impetuous and uh, bring change all at once. So change is a gradual, uh, you know, process, and uh, you need to take uh, all sides along uh, when you uh, implement uh, changes. So I think um, you know, that, uh, really, that uh, uh, set up uh, real learning there and uh, the fact that you could turn around a highly unionized uh, unionized environment yeah. and into a highly productive uh, um, you know uh, office uh, is a, i think I, I would say is one of my memorable stints uh, this was a very brief stint in the insurance company because soon uh, and by then of course the big bang reforms had come in and uh, sebi the um, um, capital markets regulator was already in place There were a great deal of changes that were happening in the capital markets, Uh, asset management companies were being set up, foreign tie-ups were happening, and uh, even within the insurance space, general insurance uh, company tied up with uh, the George Soros-led quantum fund management to set up an asset management company, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be one of the first employees of that uh, company as well, and setting up business in the eastern part of the country. So uh, so wait,
0: so, so Tell me about that. Yeah. So tell me about that. Now I, I found this extremely interesting. That day one uh, of your career, you go in with all these um, these ideas that you want to you want to have you want to make change, and then you're get out by a union. Um, that must have been something, right? And then you from there you say, uh, you know, I, I'm going to really embrace change, and I and it, that that's just. Amazing. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah.
1: See, I mean, when you look at the office there, it was an old office. The average age would be roughly about 40, 45 years of the employees. And, uh, you know, uh, most of the, you know, it's a branch office, right? It's not a very huge head uh, office kind of a setup or a, a divisional office kind of a setup. It was a completely client facing end. So the things that I wanted to bring about was. Uh, basically client-centric uh, kind of operations. And, uh, um, you know, and uh, typically the way uh, the public sectors run is a very, uh, you know, structured and uh, uh, manner where they have uh, certain rules and uh, like a lunchtime and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the productivity levels are actually capped rather than, you know, uh, uh, made uh, uh, unlimited and there was no service orientation. So that's the change we wanted to bring about. And uh, and uh, obviously, you know, uh, it was something uh, when you want to suggest this and, uh, uh, and that too on day one and uh, with uh, hardly, uh, um, you know, uh, knowing each other, I think that that's another thing. I mean, you're hardly familiar. They're not familiar with you. And you're this young bloke trying to teach, uh, you know, uh, people of uh, 40 plus uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, personal, uh, all this. So, uh, you know, obviously they won't respect you. So the idea is then, you know, uh, that was the first day. And it was a pretty hard lesson in terms of, uh, I would say, man management. Uh, I think that that's a big lesson. And after that, uh, I'm sure that uh, this was a lesson well learned. And um, I'll tell you the the big impact that it had was this became one of the uh, best uh, uh, performing branches over a period of two years. And uh, when I left, actually, and uh, the entire, the same uh, set of people who were around me, had actually uh, taken me in a procession to the station to see me off. And, uh, you know, that's how, you know, when you start looking at uh, uh, interest and uh, looking at uh, mutuality of interest and uh, addressing the concerns one by one and uh, uh, taking them away, uh, winning them away. So you uh, uh, tend to have a winning team uh, irrespective of how hostile it uh, starts as. So, and some of them are uh, still in touch with me. So that's the kind of impact uh, uh, you can have. But yeah, I mean, as I said, this is about uh, embracing change but, uh, and bringing in change. But uh, for, to do that, uh, you know, you need to understand the um, people sitting uh, on the opposite side of the table as well and uh, taking their concerns into account and then uh, trying to forge a uh, you know, common purpose.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay, that's powerful stuff. That's a, great, that's a great start to the whole story. And then you were saying something about joining uh, the George Soros Fund?
1: Uh, not the George Soros, but the GIC asset management uh, company, which was founded uh-huh. uh, with a joint venture with George Soros's quantum fund management. So uh-huh. George Soros at that time uh, you know, uh, uh, was really reckoned as one of the uh, pillars and still is uh, for the of, uh, of investment. And uh, during that time, he was uh, um, uh, very popular because he brought uh, the Bank of England to heels. And in fact, uh, uh, he earned a lot of respect because of that. Of course, he made a lot of money in the process. Uh, and uh, so, you know, uh, getting a central bank uh, to basically to heal uh, by an a individual investor is something unheard of. And uh, he uh, did that uh, during uh, that time. And uh, plus, he was a very well-respected in, uh, investor. So, GIC Asset Management Company uh, actually having a joint venture with uh, the George Soros-led Quantum Fund Management was itself a big, um, a big uh, thing, big event. And uh, you know, uh, it was a moment of pride for us actually getting an opportunity to join uh, such a company, and uh, you know, interacting with people from uh, the Quantum Fund Management. So early days in uh, capital markets was really spent uh, uh, learning from uh, some of these greats that I happened to meet uh, uh, in the course. And uh, that's how the, uh, you know, uh, the uh, stint in the financial services and capital markets got cemented. And uh, my learning uh, process began.
0: Wow. Wow. But I see that you've done your CFA and then you've also gone on and done your MBA. So what prompted that? And 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 all of this is while you are working, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How did that come by?
1: So I wouldn't say all of this was while uh, I was working. I think uh, for the MBA, which was a full-time MBA in the UK, um, I had to take a sabbatical but uh yeah i took a sabbatical after almost a decade of working and i think this is a realization that uh, you know uh, in uh, financial services typically it's a knowledge-oriented um, a business and uh, you need to be um, you know to be uh, at the edge uh, of that i mean the cutting edge of that and be successful you have to continuously uh, uh, keep uh, developing yourself and keep up to speed with the rapid uh, developments that are happening uh, uh, in, in, you know, in the financial services, uh, and, uh, really it's not just regulations, but, uh, um, customer preferences as well as the radical changes that the technology, as well as, uh, you know, the entire span of industry that, uh, keeps on, uh, bringing about, uh, you need to really, uh, keep yourself, uh, uh, abreast of, uh, things. So, uh, you know, that realization prompted me really, I mean, after, uh, Uh, Graduation. Even, you know, when I was in insurance, I I did the associate, um, uh, I completed the associate of the Federation of uh, Insurance Institutes of India. That was a technical qualification for insurance as well. So I, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, it's a personal one, but I also feel that uh, um, in the industry that I was in, uh, you need to continuously uh, uh, keep yourself uh, up to speed, yeah
0: so um so this is this is remarkable and I, and the reason I say so is that in India it's not very common for people to take a sabbatical right um, It's most of us who complete our education and then get into work, and then whatever ongoing um, development takes place is something that the employer does and it's some um, and, and right now the trend is catching on where people also do online courses but you've done this way back 15 years or 20 years ago and you took a sabbatical and you said i'm going to go do my mba that must have been pretty bold for those times right
1: yeah i think it's uh, very rare and uh, the uh, at least uh, my generation i think uh, uh, are uh, led to believe or the way they were brought about is that you know the once you are in the job you are uh, completely in the job, uh, maybe you might be changing roles or even companies, but you're in the job from uh, the start to uh, till your uh, age of retirement. And uh, uh, these things are not really uh, well uh, looked upon. And, uh, uh, you know, people would wonder why why would, uh, you want to leave a successful job and uh, try and work again. I think that's principle. The other one is, you know, typically we are oriented towards completing our ed- education completely. Uh, including post-graduation or uh, doctorate or whatever, and then getting uh, into the job and then being in the job uh, straight away. But, uh, you know, things are changing, and I think uh, that's for good. One is, of course, technology is bringing in the changes that you mentioned about online courses and continuous learning. And um, apart from that, I think uh, from a personal side, I I believe that, uh, you know, it's not all about uh, uh, slogging in the office and, uh, you know, trying to uh, save money. There are, there is a lot of richness beyond uh, wealth. uh, I mean, uh, financial wealth as well. I think that uh, realization uh, uh, meant that I need uh, live my life uh, in a more fulfilling and complete manner, and uh, not just uh, look about chasing uh, uh, money. I think uh, that's uh, another uh, early realization I say, uh, which uh, led me to take the decisions that uh, I did, and uh, I don't regret it at all.
0: So, is that one of the reasons why you decided to turn entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, it uh, it came about because, um, see, by then, uh, if you look at it, I was uh, almost um, 40 years in my age and, um, uh, you know, two decades of uh, experience in financial services. And um, I was working with a bank, uh, you know, uh, you would be familiar, maybe an Amro bank, uh, uh, and it was doing pretty well in India and uh, globally as well. Uh, but uh, during the height of uh, uh, the stock market boom in 2007, uh, it, uh, you know, Abian AMRO uh, Bank uh, was acquired by three, um, you know, uh, other banks. Uh, one, one was, uh, of course, RBS, the Royal Bank of Scotland. The other two were Banco Santander. And uh, um, the other one was the French one, uh, Bank uh, BNP so um the the, uh, the our uh, part of the bank uh, was acquired by royal bank of scotland and post 2007 when the market meltdown happened due to the global financial crisis um the rbs itself went under and uh, was bailed out by the government of uk uh, and uh, most of its global operations were getting uh, rolled down uh, or you know some of them were just getting uh, downsized uh, Um, In India, uh, I think, uh, RBS had plans to uh, sell their consumer business to uh, banks. Uh, It didn't materialize partly due to regulatory reasons and partly due to uh, other reasons. And at that point in time, I uh, felt that I need to uh, do something else rather than join another bank and uh, do the same functions. And that's how I think uh, the idea germinated. uh, uh, to become uh, an entrepreneur and uh, start a uh, trust I think that, that's how. It is.
0: So you turned an entrepreneur at uh, during the during the times of um, you know the, the you know the in 2008. Um, when when most people would actually be um, you know running to shelter, you decided to take the big leap and uh, start off at that point in time. So tell us about what what you started and how did you go about uh, putting your team together, your co-founder, and what was it all about? So the best
1: businesses, as we, you, you would have read in uh, you know in the books, happen when there is a, a deep downturn. I mean uh, because uh, the uh, when the economic uh, bounces back uh, you, uh, you know your businesses also start doing well and I think uh, uh, in the in the downturn the planning becomes much more uh, rigorous and uh, uh, and also your uh, attention to costs uh, and efficiencies are much higher whereas in a bull market, if you uh, give uh, uh, if you set, uh, set up a business uh, you know uh, money is available cheaply then uh, you, uh, there's a lot of slack that comes in and there's a lot of Uh, overconfidence in the model so I think uh, uh, it's not a bad idea to set up in a downturn but uh, really I mean the uh, crux is that you know um, do you have a a right kind of a partner uh, when you set it up and do you have the right kind of a model and the right kind of a team uh, which is aligned to that model I think as long as you um, have all these uh, pieces together uh, you know uh, it's a great time to really set
0: up a so how did you how did you go about it who was your co-founder if you can name them and um uh, and, and and about your team right and I, I have a question on that but i'll park it right now so maybe you can just uh, continue
1: yeah so i mean uh, since your question uh largely relates to the investor you know the best thing about uh, getting the right kind of an investor is when your client uh, um, uh, refers uh uh, somebody. I mean, because the client knows you, and uh, he knows the kind uh, of service that we give. I think that's the kind of uh, reference that can be, uh, uh, you know, a great one. So thankfully, I think uh, you know, uh, I, I I didn't really have to struggle much because there was a client who referred me to an investor saying, uh, look, they are um, interested in uh, the uh, you know, uh, uh, investing into a wealth management uh, company and partnering. Uh, and so that's how it happened, and uh, you know, uh, when uh, I realized, of course, at that point in time, I didn't realize uh, who that partner was. But when I got introduced, um, he happened to be the senior uh, partner for uh, Rare Enterprises, uh, which is one of the successful um, family offices uh, in India, and uh, investing into public markets. And um, this um, senior partner himself. Uh, had a, a very uh, large uh, fixed income uh, dedicated business uh, called uh, Trust uh, Financial. So in that sense, I think uh, it was a great partnership and uh, uh, did really well uh, till the time it lasted, yes.
0: Nice. Um, and you had an unusual name for uh, your company, your wealth management firm, Trust Plutus, right? What, what What's the story behind that? Yeah,
1: I mean... Uh, the, you know, it's a pretty interesting story. But when we started it, you know, many people thought that this is another MNC company uh, coming into India, and they wanted to know about it. So you know, they uh, you know, the conversation was really interesting because first, as we had to uh, tell um, the clients who we were meeting um, that it's not an MNC company; it's an Indian company, and the name. Uh, Uh, you know name was of course uh, uh, fairly easy why it uh, was what it is when I tell you uh, the reasons Uh, you know trust is um, basically the uh, central pillar around which a client advisory relationship works and we were in the financial advisory business so uh, you know trust came in uh, naturally as a you know uh, uh, to the name and uh, another reason is that as I said the fixed income company that uh, Utpal, who uh, co-founded this company, uh, happened to, uh, uh, you know, uh, have a name called Trust Financials. So that's uh, how, where we took the name from. And then, of course, Plutus. Plutus is, uh, you know, uh, in Greek mythology, you would be uh, knowing uh, that uh, it uh, stands for God of uh, Wealth. And uh, so that's how Trust Plutus happened. And uh, so that's it. That's, uh, you know, a very simple once you know the reason. But yeah, I mean, the name sounds pretty exotic. Uh, to begin with. yeah,
0: no, I think there's a lot of purpose behind it, and I think I'm so um, I'm amazed to hear uh, how the whole thing came by because it really looks like there was a plan. Um, there was a lot of thought into naming uh, the company, and you mentioned that at the core of any investing or financial advisory is trust, right? Um, what was the purpose behind
1: yeah. So as you know, this was a child of the GFC, that's the global financial crisis, you know, it was born in the cradle of that crisis. And you yourself said that it, uh, um, you know, you started in a uh, business, uh, right, at the, you know, uh, when there was an economic crisis. And if you look at the crisis, the crisis happened largely, and, and that's a global thing, is because of misallocation of resources. And why does misallocation of resources happen? Because of uh, lack of understanding of risk. And uh, also uh, in a sense that, you know, the um, incentives, the wrong kind of incentives lead to wrong kind of decisions and allocations. So what we felt, um, and we also felt that, uh, you know, in a wealth management business, there is a lot of conflict because uh, most of the wealth management businesses were run by commercial banks or investment banks or brokerage houses. Who had uh, that uh, conflict in terms of uh, um, feeding these clients into their own main line of business? So we felt a dedicated wealth management business would mean that uh, they would be removed or far from uh, you know these kind of conflicts. And the other reason is typically uh, you know um, we felt that the industry in India uh, was at a very nascent stage and uh, it required. Uh, People who were focused uh, and experienced and uh, well qualified, uh, you know, uh, with respect to this particular uh, field, and we didn't have uh, too many people skilled in this particular field, and uh, and that's also one of the reasons why we, uh, when we beefed up our team, we also, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, trained them well enough to earn certifications of CFP, that Certified Financial Planner, or a CFA, that Chartered Financial Analyst. Both are global qualifications and uh, very well respected in the uh, investment advisory field. And uh, many of our team members took it up to uh, demonstrate their commitment to this industry.
0: That's commendable. That's truly commendable. Um, so, for a startup with a, such a clear idea of how you'd like to position it, uh, what your philosophy on uh, risk was um, how you wanted to focus on um, educating your, uh, you know, your uh, salespeople, really, and insisting that there is certification that, that goes along with their training I think that goes a long way. Where, where are you on that journey right now? Uh, you've made an exit or um, where, where, can you give us some highs on some of the uh, interesting stories that you can share with us? Yeah, so uh, in
1: 2019, that's last year, I exited uh, the company I set up the Trust Lutus. Now, it's um, it happened because uh, in the journey, you while know, well, the journey uh, entirely is uh, uh, pretty uh, memorable and great, so there, is, there comes a time, you know, where you uh, come to a fork, and where uh, uh, the partners have to part. You know, the reason is very simple. Uh, when uh, we started out uh, the um, uh, trust tutors, we felt that it has to be a boutique uh, and a niche uh, uh, company uh, dedicated uh, uh, to, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, give uh, fiduciary advice to the uh, clients and. Uh, uh, which should be um, as far as possible uh, free from conflict. So, but as you uh, grow up in scale, and uh, you know, uh, there there is bound to be distortions in the model. Uh, and I felt that uh, you know, uh, I'm not ready to take up uh, a model which would uh, uh, scale up, but uh, at the same time, there would be a distortion in the model. Uh, I, I it was um, I realized that uh, if you want to scale up further, then you will end up, and uh, fast, uh, you'll end up uh, distorting the model. So, uh, but then the ambitions of an investor is always that uh, to scale up. And I think uh, that's the point. when. uh,
0: Wow. Okay. So, um, some of the things that you mentioned, right, Um, which is about... Uh, you know, prudence in terms of investing and the risk management, they seem to be very relevant for what happened in India in 2019 again, right? You, you saw some of the uh, large financial institutions go belly up. Uh, do, you have a, do you have something to say over there? Do you, because it, it's been a while and one would think that these kind of things, these kind of lessons would have been learned by investment managers by now and they wouldn't be taking those kind of risks. Uh, but that's exactly what happened all over again.
1: Yeah, so as uh, you know, there's a great saying by a renowned historian, uh, uh, Toynbee, um, if you remember, it says that those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. And, uh, you know, these economic cycles that we keep passing through every now and then uh, uh, reminds us that there are people who still forget uh, some of these lessons. And that's why these uh, things keep on occurring. And at the same time, I know one should also understand that there's a certain level of creative destruction that, uh, that takes place in a capitalist structure. Uh, While, well, you know, India is uh, is not a perfect capitalist structure. In fact, uh, no economy in the world today is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in a sense that uh, some of these destructions are welcome because it uh, takes away the weaker um, uh, institutions and, uh, you know, the, and allows the stronger institutions to get stronger. Uh, but having said that, uh, I think um, some of the... Uh, um, things that occurred, I think, could have been uh, completely avoidable, and uh, we could have uh, uh, gone through with uh, less of a crisis than uh, what we are going through today. And uh, and it's largely because of uh, you know uh, reckless incentives that um, you know uh, uh, that uh, actually spoil the um, uh, system. And as I said, uh, it's the, and even Charlie Munger, the partner of uh, Warren Buffet talks about the power of incentives and how it uh, distorts our behavior and uh, and much of uh, you know the, the mistakes are, uh, uh, that we commit are on account of these perverse incentives
0: so, can you elaborate a little bit about the uh, the performance and the uh, reward equation that happens in in the financial markets?
1: Uh, so, you know, it's a uh, let me just uh, give an illustration. Uh, if you look at uh, the incentives for uh, how 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 do you know uh, investment bankers reward their people, right? You know, uh, it's very simple. They have to crack a deal, and the deal, the larger the deal, the bigger the uh, you know. Uh, the size of the fee, and uh, so, and then when the investment banker uh, strikes a deal and uh, uh, the deal happens and the trade goes on successfully, then the investment banker, who's the relationship manager, gets a huge, huge payoff, right? Uh, in terms of bonuses and all that. Now let's uh, look at the other side that happens, the flip side, that you know after a deal uh, something happens, and the uh, over a period of time the companies. Uh, uh, which are merged or, uh, you know, together, uh, don't get along well. And uh, But here is an investment banker who's uh, done the deal and uh, taken off the bonuses. But here are two companies merged together, but, uh, you know, they're not successful. Uh, uh, even after four to five years, there's some uh, problems in terms of the culture or uh, even the product mix or uh, even the markets that they operate in that they can't run successfully. And... Uh, instead of actually 2 and 2 becoming uh, 40, that's the, uh, you know, uh, objective. Uh, they, and uh, they don't even become 2 plus 2, 4. Rather, they become 2 minus two zero 0 uh, uh, over a period of time. But then, you know, nobody penalizes the uh, original deal maker, right? Uh, so there is a power uh, play here where, you know, uh, a short-termism and uh, transaction orientation uh, uh, takes precedence over, uh, you know, uh, uh, the longer term nature, but the companies who merge, uh, you know, paid ma- a much higher price. Uh, but by then, the investment bankers have gone scot-free. So that's one part. Uh, the second part is in terms of uh, now look at uh, a-, a-, a relationship manager in a bank, and uh, he is being um, given targets on a monthly basis to sell investment products, and typically equity products, which are uh, pretty uh, risky, uh, you know. Uh, and where the market is volatile, it can go up and down uh, and you offer it to a client uh, to just meet your targets for that month. and uh, here is somebody who is uh, saddled with a portfolio uh, which might uh, not even perform even after a decade. So uh, how about that for a perverse incentive? Uh, so you get um, you know measured with, within a month of uh, doing that transaction, whereas the client is saddled with a portfolio. Uh, which is at a loss for uh, you know, in some cases even for a decade or you may not even make money for a long period of time.
0: So do you think this will ever change? Yeah, I mean,
1: see, the point about it is, you know, the regulators are aware of it. So increasingly, they keep beefing. And if you look at post-2008, um, investment banking and consumer banking got separated uh, in many of the banks and uh, the level of incentives have fallen for investment bankers. And uh, in India, the, uh, the kind of uh, fees that are earned by distributors when selling financial products have been capped now. And uh, also uh, increasingly longer-term aspects are uh, being uh, looked at while trying to, uh, you know, uh, devise a reward mechanism. But yeah, things are far from perfect at this point in time. They're still uh, on a, a developing stage, I would say.
0: There is so much talk about behavioral finance, um, uh, and it is relatively new as a subject. Correct? Uh, do you uh, do you have you encountered that in um, you know in in your investment philosophy? Have you seen that actually play out? Um, how, how does that you know? Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that? So I think
1: much of the behavior um, finance is all about keeping your egos, emotions, and expectations in uh, control, right? So it's all about that. I mean, uh, let me give you an example. I mean, if you are uh, a very egoistic person and you feel that you know uh, it all and uh, you know everything, and you are handling a portfolio and uh, you feel that a certain stock will do well and, um, and you are uh, uh, over optimistic and you don't rely on others and the stock uh, goes bad and, uh, you know, it uh, jolts you very, very uh, badly in your portfolio. Uh, And so there is another way in which, you know, when when a particular portfolio doesn't perform well and uh, you you run into a loss, you become uh, loss averse. So this is another of the, you know, the other extreme of the uh, uh, behavioral uh, experience that you encounter. Then there is one thing, you know, you encounter, uh, you know, a couple of friends in your, you know, in a social circle. And they keep recommending that their advisor had uh, recommended uh, some uh, you know, uh, stock that's bound to go up uh, and uh, you without doing any due diligence actually start uh, buying that stock just because uh, you know a couple of your friends recommended and that's kind of a social proofing or a herd mentality that you get into. Uh, so the entire role of an advisor I, I think is in terms of keeping all these three egos, emotions and expectations in check and uh, be a dispassionate um, uh, consultant uh, or a coach or a mentor to a client uh, for his portfolio and see that uh, you know uh, uh, there is no reckless behavior or overly conservative behavior that is uh, destroying uh, one's wealth. So I think that's a big role. And I think um, uh, it's all about uh, uh, you know, uh, tailoring behavior to take advantage of these uh, opportunities that uh, would happen in the market because the rest of the market would uh, keep on making these mistakes. Right. So if you are having a right advisor, uh, you would be able to identify these misaligned opportunities and uh, take advantage of this.
0: In your experience, would you say that uh, more of the relationship managers are tending towards this? Um, You know, are we at 5% of this? Are we 20%? What what is your estimate? Yeah, so...
1: You know, the good part is that, uh, you know, people are uh, uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, behavior plays a very big role in terms of, uh, you know, uh, safeguarding one's portfolio and uh, one is aware. So there are enough, uh, 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 you know, uh, training uh, material that is available now. And if you look at, uh, I think uh, there's a lot of emphasis, even at uh, the uh, Nobel Prize level in terms of the behavioral finance, and it's now recognized uh, Uh, as a science now and uh, a lot of awards have gone in as you know to be a real economist now so I think um, and also the fact that uh, the um, uh, the earlier model of um, portfolio construction hasn't really worked well uh, practically meant that uh, you know uh, a marketplace is uh, hardly perfect and uh, there is no rational man and uh, individuals that from time to time uh, deviate from rationality and uh, take decisions. So recognizing these facts um, is happening, uh, but at the same time, as you know, that you know, even with these, uh, we tend to behave, uh, and uh, you know, mo- much of the behavior is a chemical process as you know, in our body. And uh, so irrespective of the fact uh, we tend to be swayed by emotions and uh, and a large part of the population still uh, commits the same mistakes. So I th- I think there is a recognition that a behavioral finance should occupy a place in portfolio advisory and uh, um, investment advice. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know we are still at a fairly early stage in this uh, process.
0: Okay, so what's next in the playbook for you? I
1: think um, life is pretty interesting the way it is. And uh, let's see, I mean, I'm currently on a uh, two-year non-compete contract. Uh, So uh, it's uh, still early days for me to really think about what the future holds. But I think, uh, uh, you know, we are at a fairly exciting stage with the COVID and uh, the understanding the implications of uh, uh, COVID um, for people, um, you know, uh, uh balancing their work and uh home and i see the you know very important uh trends emerging out of it and uh uh some i, I would like to mention here one is that i think um you know we have always uh, uh, focused on uh, increased urbanization and uh uh you know mass uh infra uh, infrastructure mass-led infrastructure including uh, you know, uh, mass-led uh, transportation, et cetera. So, but the COVID uh, is actually um, uh, telling us that uh, it's better to go back to smaller locations and have uh, uh, much more uh, bespoke kind of transportation arrangements. Uh, it's much safer. And at the same time, what it is doing, uh, it's also saying is that, you know, that rapid uh, globalization that we had seen uh, in the past decade, um, uh, means that uh, you know the world is at a stage, and uh, you know each one uh, plays uh, as per their competencies. But uh, what again it tells us is that increasingly people would have to be more and more self-reliant. And uh, we've also seen that you know people have leveraged on technology and uh, used uh, you know some bits of. Uh, scaling up uh, at any uh, cost uh, as the most effective answer. But uh, when you are looking at uh, post-COVID implications, this may not be the ideal uh, way to, uh, you know, set up uh, your business or your model. I think there are, uh, these are early days, but uh, what we are seeing is that uh, much of what we have uh, done in the past uh, may uh, be, uh, you know, uh, may be in for a change uh, fairly radically uh, as we go ahead and we recognize the tail risk of uh, pandemics. And uh, as we know, I think uh, one should read uh, 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 Naseem Taleb's uh, book about uh, Black Swan as well as Anti-Fragility to understand uh, the implications of uh, the tail risk as well as uh, you know, preparing oneself for uh, withstanding uh, some of these extreme shocks.
0: So um, that's very interesting what you're you know so you're you're saying essentially that um, you know, a certain a certain amount of uh, self reliance or sustainability is important, and you're you're also saying that you need to localize. You need to decongest um, some of these larger uh, sort of dependencies, right? That you have on a global supply chain or something like that, and then you have some portion of your portfolio which is highly local as well. So whether that's in people, whether it's it's in your goods, whether it's your supply chain, whether it's your product or whatever, or even if it's your um, investing. Um, it, it it applies everywhere. um However, there is a counterpoint to all of this, where there is equally a large number of people who are saying that nothing will change and people will just go back to where it was. Right? They'll shrug it off and life will go on as it was. So earlier,
1: yeah, earlier in the do you subscribe? We <laughs> talked about uh, those who forget history, uh, but I would uh, also look at it from uh, this yeah. angle that you know. Uh, Uh, you know, life is not a normal distribution. There are uh, fat tails and uh, tail risks, and uh, uh, we need to increasingly provide for that. And uh, it's very difficult because, uh, you know, tail risk is a tail risk. It doesn't occur all the time. But the fact that if you look at it, you know, uh, uh, when you combine all the tail risks, it becomes fairly fat. So we are having, uh, you know, phenomenon of fat tails. So to, uh, and that, really means that, you know, it's very significant. And these are occurring fairly frequently now when you combine all the tail risks. So these are happening almost like uh, on a, um, a three to five year basis, uh, almost one risk or the other, uh, the emergence of that. So when you are taking into effect all these, and if you are not prepared for this, it will be very, very costly for someone to survive. And uh, hence, uh, I would say that uh, while uh, you know, uh, some people might say that uh, nothing will change, but uh, we have seen that uh, you know, fairly rapid change occurs when uh, somebody starts recognizing uh, the um, existence and persistence
0: of these. Wow. So that's all we have time for today. But it's been such a pleasure to talk to Rajendra and to just sort of listen to some of the things that he has to say about how the market will shape up. Thank you so much, Rajendra, for joining us. Um, And uh, before I close, I just want to say that you know one of the one of the things that you said to me a, a long time ago is that there are three things that you don't discuss with friends or uh, you know colleagues uh, one of it is cricket the second one is religion and the third one was politics
1: well, does that still hold conversation true i haven't uh, spoken a word on these three right even as illustrations <laughs>
0: Okay, on that note, thank you so much for joining us and um, yeah, hope to have great. you soon again. Uh, Bye. Aisha,
1: it's always a pleasure talking to you and look forward to meeting you.